0: Welcome to The Book on Fire. It's our second episode, but the first episode in which we actually get into a book together. Um, We're pretty excited today. We're talking about Staying with the Trouble, Making Ken in the Thulu Scene by Donna J. Haraway. Uh, She's a pretty interesting writer. Dave, do you want to say something about her?
1: Yeah. Hey. Hi, everybody. It's good to be back. I'm glad you're with us. Well, yeah, I guess we could start by saying a couple things about Donna Haraway for people who do not know about her. I haven't read that much of her stuff and I don't think Jana has either. Really. Um, She engages with many disciplines and part of this is going to, as we read through this book, it'll unfold how conversant she is, how familiar she is with the discourses of um, science, uh, including really cutting edge ecological discourse, um, complexity theory, Process philosophy, feminism, of course, uh, post-humanism, which we'll talk about probably next time. And she literally talks to, she has friends and colleagues who are scientists, friends and colleagues who are artists, friends and colleagues who are philosophers, theorists of all kinds, and she really reaches reaches out and, and synthesizes all of these influences um, in her work. And she's always had a lot of focus on the sciences and on the biological sciences, too. And this book has that in spades. Um, Yeah, so that's a little bit about Donna Haraway. And the title of the book that we're going to read, again, say one more time, is Staying with the Trouble, Making Kin in the Thulu Scene. And I'm repeating this because I want to draw attention to the richness and also some of the strange language and that the title contains because it's a little, it's kind of a hint of what the book contains too. And of Donna Haraway's specific playful, sometimes kind of opaque, but suggestive. She really walks this line between being like intuitively understandable. Like you can get a gut feeling for those words, but also it has stuff. You're like, what is the Thulu scene? What is making kin? What do these things mean? Um, And the introduction to the book actually kind of breaks it all down.
0: So I'm going to read the first paragraph in parts, just to give us kind of an idea of the kind of language Haraway uses. And some parts of this are just really beautifully written and to just put us in this um, mind world of the book. So here we go. Trouble is an interesting word. It derives from a 13th century French verb meaning to stir up, to make cloudy, to disturb. We, all of us on Terra, live in disturbing times, mixed up times, troubling and turbid times. The task is to become capable with each other in all of our bumptious kinds of response. Mixed up times are overflowing with both pain and joy with vastly unjust patterns of pain and joy, with unnecessary killing of ongoingness, but also with necessary resurgence. The task is to make kin in lines of inventive connection as a practice of learning to live and die well with each other in a thick present. Our task is to make trouble, to stir up potent response to devastating events, as well as to settle troubled waters and rebuild quiet places.
1: I love that part. One of the key phrases in here for me is the task is to become capable of response. Right. You know, and it's mixed up. It's cut here with a clause, but the the task is to become capable Mm -hmm. with each other in all of our bumptious kinds of response. So we live in troubled, mixed up, turbulent, cloudy times. And the task is to become capable of response. Um, and par- and the task is also to make kin, which we'll talk about too.
0: So I'm going to read the second half of the paragraph now. In urgent times, many of us are tempted to address trouble in terms of making an imagined future safe, of stopping something from happening that looms in the future, of clearing away the present and the past in order to make futures for coming generations. Staying with the trouble does not require such a relationship to times called the future. In fact, staying with the trouble requires learning to be truly present, not as a vanishing pivot between awful or Edenic pasts and apocalyptic or salvific futures, but as mortal critters, entwined in myriad unfinished configurations of places, times, matters, meanings.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I want to say here that we're not actually going to read aloud every sentence and (laughs) paragraph in the whole book or even the whole introduction but we're we are going slow here because this is actually she's explaining what the title means and also she's laying out some of the key points the key concepts and some of the language that she's going to use throughout the book and really i was saying this to janet before we started recording that you can almost just tell the story you can almost transmit what she's trying to get across just by talking about what her words mean <laughs> and why she's choosing them, <laughs> um, in a way, you know, that would be a pretty good summary um, of her thought. And so we are we're going a little slow right here. Um, do you have anything you want to say about that second half?
0: Well, then this will probably come up later, but I think that I I really appreciate this idea of staying in the present. And how necessary it is to actually be here in the moment to understand and to act. And we'll get to, we'll probably talk some more about this in a little while, about the possible futures, but that is one of the main chunks of insight I get from the beginning is the importance of that presence in the present. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. How about you? Staying with the trouble.
0: Right. It's very present tense.
1: Yeah. 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 And that's something that's going to come up again in a few minutes for sure.
0: Let's break it down. Please explain the thulucine, Dave.
1: <laughs> so the next concept from the title that she addresses um on page 2 <laughs> is thulucine. And she says thulucine is a simple word, which I think is really silly. She's playful even in just, she, uh, she's a trickster. Uh, thulucine is a simple word. And then she tells you kind of how the word is made up. Thulu comes from um, the Greek root thon, which is the, if y'all. Maybe know the word thonic, which is spelled C-H-T-H-O-N-I-C, mm-hmm. which means of the earth. Or a lot of times it means, like, of the underworld, too. Uh, but the more literal meaning is of the earth. And so thulu is the earth, and seen uh, comes from the Greek kynos, which that's a suffix that you might be familiar with from geology, where there's, like, the Pleistocene and these other scenes and that's recently been used to delineate the Anthropocene, which you've probably heard of as well uh, by now. And so she's proposing a different word, a different designation, which is Thulucene. And she likes this. We're going to talk about this more. in when we talk about chapter two, because chapter two is contains a kind of extended argument for why Thulucene is a better term than Anthropocene or another word she brings in (laughs) capitalocene, like the, the geological time of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, it, but yeah, what's important here is that, um, well, for one, there's two things I think that are important here. At least one of them is this is not Cthulhu as in the monster from H.P. Lovecraft. And in fact, she only addresses the monster from H.P. Lovecraft in footnotes where she, it's a couple times in the book where she points out, like, and by the way, I'm not talking about Cthulhu, the monster from H.P. Lovecraft, which if you haven't, if you don't know about this or haven't read H.P. Lovecraft, Cthulhu is probably his most famous of cosmic, demonic entities uh, in the horror novels of H.P. Lovecraft. Cthulhu is something that, you know, just the sound of it breathing would be enough to drive a man to the madhouse forever and unable to speak and unable to tell the tale it's this kind of lovecraftian beast and she actually changed the spelling of thulu scene so it looked different enough from lovecraft's cthulhu that people wouldn't mistake it i think that there's a trickster thing going on here where she is secretly pleased that people think of cthulhu when they see the title of her book, even though she explicitly reinforces that Cthulhu's not what I'm thinking about, you know, it has no role to play for me. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, so, but just to recap that, it's not Cthulhu, it's Thulu, which means of the earth. So a little bit about Thonic, the reason why she picked that word that means of the earth to name her book, the Thulu, to name this time, the Thulu scene is because she really, she really wants to steer our attention towards the critters of the earth, the spiders, the snakes, the whales, the humans, the lichens, the bacteria, the microbes. These are the actors, the agents that she wants to be talking about. And, um, and she's also very specific about the use of the word critters uh, she calls all kinds of animals and beasties and stuff critters. And, you know, her word choice is very important to her. And she makes a deal out of saying, I don't want to say creatures because creatures comes from creation, which kind of invokes this God centered, you know, created history, when critters is just a lot more down to earth. It's just mm-hmm. the earth is crawling with critters. Can we just say that? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. And she's like, she wants to call this time period, the way that I'm reading this, and maybe you have something else on this, but the way that I'm reading this is she wants to call this time period the Thulu scene because it's like, if you think about the critters, it's like the time of the critters. And, you know, when I'm thinking through this, I'm like, well, isn't, isn't all of time period the time of the critters? You know, like this earth is always, as long as there's been a little life, it's been swarming with critters. And so why is this part, any different and we have to draw attention to it. Um, And I think what Haraway is doing here is that she is talking about how for humans using this word, it's important for us to be thinking about all the critters and that maybe this is even a time period in which we are more entangled with the other critters of the earth than we have been at other times I'm not sure she doesn't say this in here anywhere, but this is partly my reading of it because like partially because humans have like unleashed the climate crisis, Mm -hmm. you know, and disturbed the nature of the oceans and, and have extincted so many species and are disrupting so many ecosystems that there's a sense now more than maybe five or 10,000 years ago that we and the other critters are sharing in, a reality are sharing in a time period, like Mm -hmm. sharing in a fate. I mean, not that we're all going to experience the same fate, but there is, but the linkages between us are being mobilized in a different way, Mm -hmm. in a new way. And so the Thulu scene is the, the, the word that describes that, you know, the word that describes like us and the critters being on a boat together that like, where's this boat going to end up? is the boat going to survive? Is it going to go down? Something like that.
0: That's interesting. I hadn't actually thought about it that way, but it makes sense that you would say that um, or see it that way, given that she's offering up this term in contrast to, and in opposition to the Anthropocene, which she sees as reinforcing a human centric view of the world. She's like, oh yeah, not only do you have to like completely change the whole world with your um, dominant economic system, you also have to name it after you, the time that we're living in, you know? Yeah. So that makes sense, that like the Theleucene would be in counter to an anthropocentric version of wor- the world.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: At the same time that I think it's acknowledging a vast evil.
1: Yeah, <laughs> totally! I think that's in there. And in Chapter 2, it's going to come up again. Yeah. So um, here's, a, here's a little quote. Thonic ones are not safe. They have no truck with ideologues. They belong to no one. They writhe and luxuriate in manifold forms and manifold names in all the airs, waters, and places of earth. They make and unmake. They are made and unmade. They are who are. Wow. Which I love that part. You know, the the critters, the thonic ones, are just who are. They are us. Right. They are all the critters. You know. Um. So this is part of what Haraway is doing. She's always just putting us alongside all the other critters, you know, as another critter. Um, So kin is the next word we want to talk about um, from the title because it's making kin in the Thulu scene. So what about kin?
0: I think kin probably, most of us know the word kin as meaning, uh, as in kinship, meaning people where you're related to by blood. And kin is, in that sense often means that the people that we care more for the safety of or for protecting or hoping to preserve. And I think then within anthropology, there's some ideas around that having to do with maintaining certain lineages um, and how people divide themselves up. Uh, A bigger picture would be outside of blood kinship is tribal kinship. And that's probably the next layer up. Of what kin might mean, mm-hmm. which is a similar idea but not necessarily connected by blood, but it's who you're looking out for, who you identify with. So the point Haraway's making here is it no longer suffices for us to stick to these kinds of kinship that are would place us only within the realm of the human and that we need to be acknowledging our connections with the rest of life. And um, see ourselves as responsible, response able to all of other life forms and not just specific kinds of humans. And this concept would be helpful within humans as well, because if we saw people outside of whatever group we are in as kin as well, then that would help a lot of different situations out politically and socially. Um, When we actually dared to care about the people around us as if they were family or chosen family, rather than only caring about the people that we hold close. So the idea of making Kin in the Thulu scene, it's a way of staying with the trouble. It's a way of being present and trying to work towards solutions by forming new connections and new collaborations and new strategies with all of other the rest of life. That's what I get from making Ken. What do you think it means?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Uh, when you were talking, it made me think about how in our herbal practice, me and Janice's herbal practice, and in our herb school, we talk a lot about forming relationships with non-human critters. We don't usually say critters. Specifically plants, <laughs> you know? Not just forming relationships with plants as medicine, but also forming relationships with the woods, the fields that you go to, forming relationships with the ecosystems, the animals there, with the elements of nature there, and actually working with these partners as part of a holistic, ecologically based, getting back into reconnection and kinship herbal practice. Uh, and so, you know, what Haraway's saying here resonates so much with. The kind of stuff that we talk about um, all the time. That's part of the reason why we're excited about this book and want to read it. Um, you know, connecting and reconnecting is kind of a buzzword right now. Even in the way that I was just talking about in our herb practice, it is. And um, I think what part of what Haraway is doing that's great here is that she's actually, you know, and as the book unfolds, you'll understand this. She's trying to like sketch out and give examples of how though. You know, how can those connections happen really? And not just as a kind of a feel good principle, but as like, let's get down and dirty. Let's Mm -hmm. get into the thick of the, the humus, the compost that is creation and see what all of this messy making kin can actually look like. Um, and the stuff that she describes is very different from like what we talk about in a lot of ways about making kin with plants. Uh, so i think we got through the title (laughs) staying with the trouble um staying with the trouble we talked about the trouble and what it might mean to stay with it we talked about what making kin could be like and we sort of defined the thulu scene
0: we'll come back to some of these again for sure
1: yeah and these don't worry all of this will return recur
0: One of the main impetuses for Haraway writing this book, as I see it and what she names in the introduction, is that a lot of responses to the troubling times we're in fall into two categories. Uh, One of them is the we're going to get out of this through some kind of technological fix. Um, Some people see this as a singularity, which would be technology advancing to a place where we can't even imagine where the technology is going to figure out how to save the planet. Um, And people who have all of their marbles in that bag um, are just kind of waiting around for that to happen. Um, The idea might be that the artificial intelligence that we create will will fix this, even as the resources extracted from the earth to fuel the computers continue to be taken out. So it's kind of a race against time. Uh, as far as resource scarcity goes. Do you have anything to say about that specific one before I introduce the other one?
1: Yeah, just the idea that something is going to come to save us.
0: Right, right, right. You know,
1: whether that's God or the revolution or technological fixes, you know, that's one thing that she is writing against.
0: Right. The second category of responses to these turbulent times that we live in that haraway is countering is the school of thought that this is game over it's all over we've we've already failed we will not survive the apocalypse that we have created and within that there is definitely an idea that that is exactly as we deserve because humans are the conscious dominating species the problem that i see with this very very popular and seductive mindset for one thing is that within that when we think that way that humans are the bad part that humans are by nature destroyers through the act of gaining consciousness, uh, for one thing, it heightens human exceptionalism, which means we're different from all other animals. Um, And the way that we're different is we're not capable with living in harmony with other animals in the rest of life. And when we think and talk that way, we render invisible all of the peoples who have lived and continue to live who do live in relative harmony, who learned from the extinctions they caused, who learned to not take more than they needed. And those people existed throughout time and continue to exist on the planet. So the problem I see here is when we say game over, there is often, um, I see that mindset as pretty selfish because it often means the damage is done. I don't actually have to do anything to work for change. And I don't have to work with the rest of life to actually improve the chances of any sort of survival because humans are going to get exactly what they deserve. So I obviously don't agree with that <laughs> um, that mm-hmm. category of thought, but that's the one that we see a lot more of, I think, than the techno fix.
1: Yeah, yeah, and she acknowledges in here that that version is harder to dismiss, even though it's more destructive. And she has—it's interesting. Uh, she comes at it from uh, a particular background of talking to a lot of scientists and stuff, and she actually has this to say: sometimes scientists and Others who think, read, study, agitate, and care know too much, and it is too heavy. Yeah. Or at least we think we know enough to reach the conclusion that life on Earth that includes human people in any tolerable way really is over, that the apocalypse really is nigh. And so part of her explanation is this, that the scientists that are close to the data (laughs) um, can just feel really weighed down with you know, having such a close association with seeing the destruction and seeing the change. And so it's very easy for them to get into that attitude. Yeah. Did you?
0: I think that I want to just add here that the weight of really looking at the state of the world and at the rate of extinction and the the fact that we are past the tipping point in climate change and that catastrophic change is happening all of the time, and resource scarcity is going to get worse around the globe. Um, I think that that is a huge weight to bear, and part of the point of the book is learning to bear that and to find ways to act within that that are not defeatist and don't spread this concept of defeat. Um, But within that, I want to say that I think that one of the ways I have, and many people I know um, have made peace partially with the times that we're in is to embrace the concept of deep time where humans are just a blip here and our time here is short but and and relatively insignificant it it helps people to think of things that way and so sometimes scientists especially might uh, get into the concept of deep time and while that has been really helpful for me I think it can also lead to another form of inaction and apathy and defeatism, because which you can couch under the terms of having like a grand, big-picture cosmic vision. And so you, again, get to give up any kind of responsibility to any others in life, and it can actually sort of become a solipsistic view of the world. There's almost like a kill them all and like Gaia sort of out type mentality that I see that can come up once we think too cosmically big picture of deep time about things.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, because that is also not staying with the trouble. Right. Right. You know? Okay, we're back. Uh, We've got a chicken in the oven, and we are going to talk about chapter one. <laughs> uh, chapter one is called Playing String Figures with Companion Species. Playing string figures with companion species. It opens with some more exploration of some of these concepts that Don Haraway holds dear, and we're going to talk about only a couple of them here. Um, and then there's a whole long part about pigeons and different ways that people relate with pigeons, which is exciting and that we'll get to soon. But we really need to talk about the string figures, which is one of the most important concepts in the book. And uh, I think, in my opinion, so far, the string figures is one of the most important (laughs) concepts in the book. (laughs) I'm making these imperious statements over here. Um, But uh, yeah, and Janet's going to talk about string figures.
0: When I first was reading about the string figures, I... Um, wasn't sh- I thought maybe it meant more like an art piece made out of string, but then I realized she was talking about when you actually play a game with your hand with strings and that you put them in different patterns, and then that there are certain versions of that where multiple people can play together and you expand, like a cat's cradle type thing is the one I kn- knew growing up. And you make a string figure with your hands, and then you have to, and if someone wants to take it and change it into another shape, they actually have to know where what to do with their hands to take and receive the string figure from you. Part of what Donna Haraway is talking about in this is that she's referring to how when anthropologists, European anthropologists, were going around the world and traveling, they encountered so many different kinds of string figures and cultures around the world and some cultures they met had so many they had never seen or encountered before and in many indigenous cultures there would actually be a way of translating meaning and myth with the string figure games and people would actually be able to, would would actually, and continue to with cultures that have the string figures, because I, there's a strong string figure tradition in Navajo culture. Um, people would actually pass on their stories to each other. The story of either how we got here, or the story of how, why the world is like this, the story of our people. Um, and within those vibrant string fi- figure cultures that exist, there is something about remembering and meaning-making in a very tactile way that doesn't necessarily need language. Mm -hmm. And within that, Haraway has seen a lot of potential for ways we could conceive of other ideas and other relations.
1: Yeah, totally. This string figure thing, at first, she's obsessing over these string figures, these like Cat's Cradle-type games where you twist loops of string into all these different patterns and make them change uh and yeah which janet said it's really amazing that that same general idea exists in all these different cultures because you know on one hand sure why not but on the other hand that's pretty specific of mm-hmm. a thing for all these cultures to have invented or maybe it got passed along and stuff um but Hairway's is obsessed with these and they mean so much to her and they mean in so many different ways and i finally like as i've like stayed with the trouble of the book (laughs) Um, i've uh it's it's become a little more clear to me how many dimensions of meaning they have and why for her and why she's um playing string figures constantly Mm -hmm. and everything that janet talked about totally and the way that they work for the cultures that they arise in And I would add another thing about how sometimes the string figures are representational. There's Mm -hmm. a picture in the book that's like two coyotes going opposite directions. And there's a picture of a person who's doing a string figure that's called that. And and you can see how it kind of looks like two coyotes going in different directions. But then part of it, it can also just be pure pattern, you know, Um, and that's beautiful in itself too. And then there's this other dimension of the string figures being an image or I, I don't really want to say the word metaphor, but like um, an image of the way that different beings, maybe including inanimate objects, like whatever the beings of the world are, are formed and connected in the universe. Like this is, I think she's talking about this too. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure, sure that like that, That if you look at a string figure like a cat's cradle, it's made up of twists, you know, which you could call knots, um, where the string is like tangled around itself and forms kind of a knot. And then going out from there are lines of twine that go to other twists Mm -hmm. and knots. And it makes kind of a network and a pattern of knots and the lines connecting them, you know. And so this makes a really good image of connections in nature Mm -hmm. between different species or between different individuals or between different anything, you know, between the mountain and the trees or the soil and the river and, and, or the human and the livestock and the fleas that are on the cattle or whatever kinds of stuff, you know, you you can conceive of it in tons of ways. And the string figure, it is the knots, which are, you know, the cow is like one knot, the farmer is another, however you want to, conceive of that. And then the string figure is also the lines that connect them in some kind of a pattern of relationship. And one thing that I, that is really important about the string figure is that the knots are just made up from the strings. The twists are, are made of the connections. And this is a very important, this teaches a very important point in the kind of science and philosophy that Donna Haraway is a part of because the, the connections are more important than the individuals and that the individuals do not precede the connections. It's not like first there were a bunch of individuals and then they became connected. Mm. No, the individuals arise with their connections with and through their connections. And in a string figure that's, part of what is going on. It's all just string, you know, Mm -hmm. which is the connecting thing. Mm -hmm. But when the string, when the potentialities of connection become knotted Mm -hmm. in certain ways, become consolidated and twisted, it forms a thing. It forms like an organism. It forms an individual, you know, but they're all made of the same stuff and it's endlessly reconfigurable. So the, you know, you can make a pattern with a string figure that's a certain pattern like a cat's cradle and then you can move your fingers around and it like unknots some of the knots and reknots them in different places and it's the same piece of string but now it's in a totally different pattern with a completely different configuration of connections and individuals. And so this is just I think a really, you know, like I said at first I didn't really get it or it took me a while to get it, but once I got it I think, "Oh, this is a very, very beautiful and useful image for connections and ecosystems connections and nature's all kinds of beings that are what they are through connection with other beings and and a way to think with the 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 endless changeabilities and possibilities and reconfigurations and new connections that are always possible because there's always a new string figure that someone didn't invent yet And the practice of string figures that she's talking about, you know, she's, she's calling on this idea of string figures to be like, we should, we should be like the Navajo children or whoever, you know, who, who invent string figures and then pass them on to a partner because that's part of these games a lot of times Mm -hmm. is that, you know, you, you can receive a string figure from your friend and you have to hold your fingers out in this certain way and be capable of receiving it. Mm -hmm. That means you have to be capable of like holding the pattern. Um, And then it might be your turn to like change the pattern and then you hand it back. You know, that's one way of playing the game. Uh, But so there's so many dimensions. There's the collaboration, the play, and then the emblematic nature of the string figure itself to represent something about creation and critters and the way that they're all interconnected, um, and it's culture and it's all of this stuff. It's a very rich, very rich concept, I think.
0: I was just thinking how, in that book, The Songlines, who I can't remember who wrote right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, he talked about when traveling with uh, Aborigines in Australia that there was this idea that when you see a specific plant or a specific animal and you start to recognize it as an individual rather than just one of a whole group Mm
1: -hmm. that you
0: make a line of connection with that individual. Mm -hmm. And then every time you see it or interact with it afterwards, whether it's by walking by the plant every day or by seeing a specific bird on your feeder or outside on your porch, then that string or connection is reinforced over and over again and becomes thicker And that you are thickening your connections and the more individuals. You're bonded. You're more bonded. Yeah. And the more individuals that you have that with, the thicker your web and the more intimate your relationship is with life.
1: Yeah. The thicker the web. Yeah. 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 The denser the weave. Yeah, yeah. Something kind of. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that idea. That's so beautiful. Yeah.
0: Should we read this singer's quote before we move on? Or no.
1: Oh yeah. Um yeah, do you maybe wanna do that? we want to take a second to okay. We want to take a second um she brings up this thinker, she introduces her as a chemist scholar of Whitehead and Gil Deleuze, um Isabel Stengers, who I believe is French and who I really want to read more about. Mm-hmm. I want to read some more of her work uh, because she seems great for a lot of different reasons. If you're reading the book too, like maybe she stuck out for you, but there's, uh, um, I guess just this one sentence where she's, she has this idea called cosmopolitics, like cosmo, like cosmopolitan, but cosmopolitics. And the quote in here is, um, in the spirit of feminist, communitarian anarchism and the idiom of whitehead, who's a philosopher of science, And the idiom of Whitehead's philosophy, she maintains that, and here's the important part, decisions must take place somehow in the presence of those who will bear their consequences. That is what she means by cosmopolitics. And I just thought that that was a really beautifully profound and simple idea that, um, and just a beautiful expression of it, decisions must take place somehow in the presence of those who will bear their consequences and what the implications of that could be.
0: Yeah, because if you think about what does it mean to make a decision in the company of those who will bear the consequences, we can obviously think of that on how much that would transform um, life on a societal level if we did policies that way.
1: Or social movements. Yeah. You know, where like movements to change things about the world, the decisions in those movements should be made in the presence and with the collaboration of people who will be affected by those changes. You know, like that's an idea that is maybe not super controversial anymore. It's like, uh, it's like pretty easy to think with that idea. But what if,
0: but what if we expand that to be all of life? Like when say even like I'm expanding the garden and that means cutting some trees down, then I have to go and consider make that decision in the company of those trees, you know? Um,
1: of these companion species of ours. Right,
0: right.
1: You know, it kind of relates to the companion species. It's mm-hmm. like what what does it mean to what does it mean to you know, and she says in the presence of those who will mm-hmm. bear their consequences, you know, like and what kind of presence are we talking about right. there? You know? And yeah, and just like really invoking always and calling in those who will who will be impacted by the decisions being made. Uh, So one of our companion species as humans on the planet are pigeons. Um, All the different kinds of pigeons and rock doves and the domesticated pigeons, the feral pigeons, the wild pigeons of the world. And Haraway spends the rest of this chapter talking about pigeons and pigeon-human collaborations and interactions in a lot of a lot of forms, she gives a lot of examples um, as ways to illustrate like how humans can partner with, can become with, can learn to flourish with a other than human partner, other than human species, so that we can kind of get an idea of where she's going on the ground with some of these ideas.
0: I think it's really cool that she picked pigeons to talk about here. Yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> and I just want to say that. I think that part, so part of what she's talking about and the reason that she picked pigeons is pigeons are, they hold a lot of spaces in human consciousness in that they are reviled and hated as invasives. Um, in many places they are seen as a harbinger of a uh, colonial footprint or of the reach of the empires, um, because the pigeons came with Europeans around the world, although there were also already pigeons in some places. Um, and within that context, they receive a certain amount of vitriol as being... In some ways, I think they have a lot in common with invasive plants in that they take the heat or, say, the guilt that human that people of European descent have um, about the colonial legacy, and so it's kind of easier to put that project that onto plants and animals. And pigeons get some of that, I think. Um, pigeons are also loved fiercely, especially by certain communities, usually working class men um, and definitely folks of men, especially in North, Af- North African and Mediterranean descent.
1: Um, but also just in the Middle East and
0: and in the Middle East, but definitely working class folks, um, in, of color often in cities in the U S are who she's talking about.
1: And they're called pigeon fanciers.
0: Yeah. They're called pigeon fanciers. (laughs) Um, and they race their pigeons and they work with these, these homing pigeons and they have these sweet relationships, you know, where they, um, go out with other guys and, and, run their pigeons together, fly them together, you know? And, and, um, so she's talking about that relationship somewhat, uh, pigeons. I also find interesting, and I'm assuming that's part of the reason that they're in here is because they're highly adaptable rock doves originally lived on cliffs and when brought, uh, around the world with European, Uh, colonial settlers, they adapted to live on man-made architecture, especially where there are large buildings and skyscrapers. And so that is why they have flourished as much as they have, because they have turned urban areas with tall buildings into their cliffs.
1: So they've been close to people in that way too. Yeah. Which is like part of their history of their intersection with humans is that there's all these urban pigeons that are... That that we just it's it's part of what we think of when we think of an urban landscape, Definitely. which is a very people people centered mm-hmm. landscape. But they are a wild thing within it.
0: And I learned from her book that and people
1: feed them. And, oh yeah, you know, so some
0: people like love yeah. them in cities because that's some yeah. of the only bit of the wild they get to be around. Yeah, you know, so it's this uh, this like living force there. Yeah. But also, uh, I learned from this book that pigeons are the main food source for urban, urban raptors. So some of the raptors that were almost extinct during the widespread use of DDT came back partially through getting to eat pigeons in cities. So that's this complicated part of the web where the the pigeons help bring back these uh, predator birds, you know, which I love that.
1: And give them habitat that might... That would otherwise be Not taken from be them. their
0: habitat, right? You know, the pigeons facilitate that yeah, through being eaten because
1: they have something to hunt, even in the city. Right, it's <laughs> really interesting. Yeah, and they're also raised for food, right? Sometimes, and she doesn't really talk about this, but they've been used in, for lab experiments and stuff like that too. So there's all these different ways that humans and pigeons have like co, have become co involved.
0: Pretty famously, were no, uh, used as uh, to deliver messages in World War II, right? If yeah, all kinds
1: of battle, all kinds of battle, because they are really good at returning to whatever they consider home, and so you can take a pigeon into battle with you, and if you let it loose, it'll fly back to base. You know, if that's where home is, and so you can attach a message to it, and it'll take a message back to the base or something. Mm-hmm. You know, so they've always been used for that.
0: Some even went over the English Channel. I think there's some famous. Um, oh, yeah.
1: I'm, yeah, not surprised by. that There's at all.
0: some that are known by name that have received medals of honor <laughs> yeah. for delivering messages during World War II.
1: Yeah. I hope yeah. I'm getting
0: my wars right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not sure, if I am,
1: but. So she uses all of these examples having to do with pigeons to. Illustrate, and she uses a couple different specific terms here. Again, one of them is becoming with, which is like a hyphenated becoming hyphen with. And becoming is a word that, like, if you've ever read Deleuze or some other continental philosophy, becoming this, becoming animal, becoming woman, becoming sorcerer—all of these things are are are. Uh, it's like this, tr- this transformational active thing that has been talked about a lot in philosophy. Um, but she, she specifies becoming with, which means that you don't get to become something just on your own. Oh,
0: right. You uh-huh. become
1: something together with a companion species, mm-hmm. t- together with a partner. How can you become, become with, how can you and a partner become with something together? You know, how can you turn into something through your partnership? Or through your uh, community. Or through your community, yeah, and then yeah, because it's not it's not always like a binary pair right. or something, yeah. Uh, and the other term is rendering capable. Um, so in a lot of these examples, she she talks about how the humans and the pigeons render each other capable mm-hmm. of something new. So there's a new capacity that's developed through the interaction. And the collaboration of, in this case, these two species, these two different species, you know. And so that's part of, in some of her examples. And, like, one of them, I'll just talk about maybe, like, real quick. She talks about uh, this military program where oh, yeah. in the 70s, <laughs> where in the 60s that's and 70s, cool. they were they were training pigeons. Like, because pigeons have really good eyesight. Um, they were training pigeons to help humans spot uh, sailors, or even de- um, equipment. even equipment and stuff that might be bobbing around in the ocean. This was like the navy, you know. So it's like, say, you've got a guy who splashes down from his airplane because he ejects in the middle of the ocean and he's floating in the ocean, and then you send out the rescue plane, and people are, you know, just have to spot him mm-hmm. with their binoculars and stuff. But pigeons are really good at spotting things from a distance, and so they were apparently having a lot of success. With this program where they put pigeons in a bubble, like hanging from the bottom, a clear bubble hanging from the bottom of an airplane and having the pigeons somehow guide the plane or help to guide the plane to where the people were floating. And so that's just, I mean, there's more to say about that, but the pigeons and the people were rendered capable of something that neither could do on their own.
0: Part of what was interesting about that story, too, is that they, she said that they had much higher success rates when they got to work with other pigeons. And if there was more than one of them, <laughs> then they were better <laughs> at pecking the keyboard to say there's something down there or whatever they were doing to communicate. So, like, as a team, the pigeons were working better in a, in a more flock-type situation. One of her other examples, uh, that one of the other examples that she uses to talk about pigeon human collaboration, is this conceptual art project in LA that is called Pigeon Blog. And in it, they were using pigeons to, or working with pigeons, in a way I would say they were using pigeons, to um, test the air quality all around the city. And so they got together, these art students and professors got together with these pigeon fanciers who lent out their pigeons and they, they made these tiny backpacks with these sensors on them and they would fly around. Well, the people that made the backpacks would not fly around. The pigeons would fly around
1: <laughs> wearing the backpacks, wearing the
0: backpacks <laughs> and testing the air everywhere and sending data back. And so part of what they were subverting was the fact that, uh, that County, which has terrible, terrible air quality often. And some of the worst air quality is in communities of color and marginalized communities And they would make it, the county's own record of air sensing would be designed in such a way that they would not get very accurate data because they didn't want accurate data. The
1: sensors were like up on the mountaintops that would measure the air pollution and the smog. And, you know, so people are like...
0: That's That's not 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 measuring (laughs) the
1: air where we are down here, breathing the shit, you know? And so so this was partially an answer to that inadequacy.
0: So yeah, the pigeons would um, fly around and then come back and they would take them to different places. And then we'd go back to their home with all, and have collected all this data. You know, this of course brings up certain ideas about consent and what, how much we can work with other species in certain situations. But these are pigeons were, these were pigeons that were already had already established relationships with people who took care of them and tended them. And so it seemed less enforced outside of that. Um, but within that, there this was an example of working with working class folks who were pigeon fanciers to test and share data on the air quality where they live. And from that study, people in other places around the country got interested in Well, that's not really a study, it's an art project. Mm -hmm. So from that art project, people around the country um, at scientific institutes started to also see the potential for working with pigeons and started to do more integrative community science efforts with pigeons through getting kids to study them and record colors and behaviors and just getting people more integrated into seeing them as wildlife near them, rather than a scourge rather than rats with wings or the, the way that we normally talk about pigeons.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think she, the pigeon blog is something that she, it's, she probably spends the most time yeah. almost, um, on that one, because the cross pollinations are kind of like the most in that one, yeah. where it's like these art. It, it was an art project, not a science project, but it also is like, so there's artists and then it's kind of citizen science, mm-hmm. you know, people just like grassroots collecting data that right. can be useful. And they had to find some tech people to design the backpacks because the backpacks had cellular transceivers from cell phones in them to transmit the data and to measure the air quality and all this stuff and then yeah these pigeon fanciers that would race their pigeons um she she found a couple volunteers who would like volunteer their pigeons and make them be available for part of this experiment and stuff yeah um yeah there's this sentence here um the artists, researchers, and the pigeon fanciers had to render each other capable of mutual trust so that they could ask the birds for their confidence and skill. Which is just a really sweet, (laughs) a really sweet thing.
0: One of her other examples is one that has a more ambivalent relationship with pigeons as a companion species, and it is in Australia in Batman Park and There, they've acknowledged that pigeons, as brought over by colonial settlers, have done an incredible amount of damage to an island ecosystem. And they want the pigeons to actually reproduce less without going the way of poison and extermination. So they built this beautiful tower that has hundreds of nesting holes in it. And within that, the pigeons can come in and lay their eggs, and volunteers come and take the eggs and put uh, wood wooden eggs in there for the pigeons to brood on so more pigeons aren't born, thus keeping a sort of cap on the population. And then under the tower, people can also collect bird guano, so it's a place to collect feces for gardening for in a permaculture sense. And then um, there, in this example of the... Gosh, what is it called? What's the tower called?
1: The Batman Park Loft.
0: Oh, the Batman Park Loft um, is an example of humans learning to live with companion species in a way that means not letting them just proliferate. You know, it means putting a control and figuring out elegant designs for actually having a check on an opportunistic species without actually exterminating them or putting poison into the environment. And I think that is a really beautiful example. And within the section on that, she brings back up this concept that comes up early, which is response ability. And so it's hyphenated response ability. And there she's taking apart the word responsibility, saying we have to have the ability to respond.
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think that that is really beautiful too. The thing where it's like you make the most palatial and attractive place for pigeons to roost in the whole town Mm -hmm. and then you sneak their eggs away (laughs) (laughs) once they lay the eggs in there right and replace them with something that they like almost just as good because you know some would say humans have a responsibility to mend the broken ecosystems Mm -hmm. that got broken from bringing in this invasive quote-unquote or non-native species to this island
0: a disruptive species for sure. a
1: disruptive species yeah and this is a way of of not restoring what was lost but of responding Mm -hmm. you know of of doing something of course this doesn't solve solve the pigeon problem Mm -hmm. you know but she brings it into the book as an example of the kind of thinking the kind of acting that uh that she wants to uplift um, responsibility is about both absence and presence, killing and nurturing living and dying and remembering who lives and who dies and how in the string figures of natural cultural history. That was kind of a potent sentence. Yeah. Um,
0: There's this one quote I really like about the tower and in it, she says, the tower certainly cannot undo unequal treaties, conquest, and wetland destruction, but it is nonetheless a possible thread in a pattern for ongoing, non innocent, interrogative, multi species getting on together.
1: Yeah, That's I, it right there. Yeah, I yeah.
0: love that. And I love that. Um, I love this acknowledgement that none of us are innocent, that we can't be innocent, and no one has clean hands, nor can we keep our hands clean while we're dealing with this. Mm -hmm. You know, like, we all are going to have to get in the muck, get in the compost, whatever she would say, I guess. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. When I hear that, I keep, I honestly keep thinking about Pat Benatar's song, Invincible and how she says, we can't afford to be innocent, stand up and face the enemy.
1: Oh, totally. Yeah. And
0: (laughs) that song is such an awesome anthem, you know? Yeah. And I think that uh, when I think about this uh, in this context, I'm like, yeah, we can't afford to be innocent. We have to stand up and face the enemy. And who is the enemy in this case? To me, that is any and all forces that are working against life and against connection, rather than on the side of life.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. It's messy. And that's part of the point. Right. There's no purity. There's no pure, total, perfect solution. It's all messy. And staying with the trouble is going to be messy. something good out of our breakdown of the introduction in chapter 1 to staying with the trouble. I'm going to try to get some videos of doing some string figures in the show notes and maybe a link to the book, the song lines that Janet mentioned. Next week we'll be back with chapter 2. In the meantime, you can write us at the book on fire podcast at gmail.com. All right, see you soon.